0: Thanks. That was great worship. A couple of announcements before we get started. Um, I saw Pastor Jose, and I wonder if you'd like to come up and share what's going on tomorrow at that event, and then maybe also while you're up here, tell us about the Mexico outreach that's coming up too to Tijuana. So, Pastor Jose.
1: That's a surprise.
0: I figure you go shorter if I surprised you.
1: <laughs> well, I gotta stop shaking first. Well, the, uh, God has really opened the doors for us to minister together as one body in Christ. Uh, Laguna Hills uh, High School, most of you gen- just know it was a big opening last Saturday. It's a beautiful place. And uh, we have the opportunity to present the gospel uh, that place hosts about 10,000 people. I estimate we're going to reach out about 7,000, and I don't know how many God will bring into his kingdom. So you are invited to take part in this outreach. Ah, uh, my wife is sing- signaling something over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to be there from 1 p.m. until closing. Okay, so you are welcome to come. It's gonna, we're going to be setting up from 1 p.m. But at 3 p.m. is when people start coming. And so we're expecting a whole army of you coming over there and serve our Lord together. Okay, that is for the 4th of July. Please come. My wife has so many boxes of materials. That is incredible. You cannot even get into my home. Uh, the 27th of July, uh, we are serving with the Calvary Chapel, uh, La Mirada. Uh, This is going to be like the fifth Fiesta de Libertad in Tijuana, Mexico. You're welcome to come. That is going to be a wonderful opportunity. That's one day mission trip to Mexico. You want to see what it's like to be in a third world country? That's a good opportunity. Please come. Be here at 6 a.m. the 27th and expect to be here until 11 p.m. Wonderful time. You will never be the same. Guarantee. Okay? Bring your youth because we're reaching out to the younger Crowd down there is beautiful. The harvest is really beautiful down there. And it's a, a great honor to be part of that one. So that's all I have. Please come and pray for us. If you can't come, pray for us as we go. Okay? God bless you all. I'm still shaking.
0: Thanks, Jose. That's great. Pray about either of those opportunities that God will really bless. They have some i saw the materials that they're going to be passing out tomorrow and they're really really nice real eye-catching and the gospel presented clearly and so if you want to help out if not just pray Um, and then the same thing with that tijuana outreach i was thinking if they did the tijuana outreach first then you could have got fireworks for the fourth of july but (laughs) (laughs) sometimes it just doesn't work out that way pray for the people that are going to england going to be leaving this week um, also, I talked about family camp. There's a family camp August 11th, and if we, like, really get a lot of people to go, then we can kind of take over that week and make it a tradition for our church, and so I did go by and get some retreat registration cards. I only got a couple of these things that give the prices, um, but it's uh, adults 13 and over, $130. It's for the whole week. Um, six to 12-year-olds, $105. Three to five-year-olds, 80 $80. To and under $55, and so you can kind of add that up. It takes a $25 deposit per person to save the space. So I'll put this thing that has the prices, and I'll put these cards like right down in front. If you remember, you want to grab one, and then maybe bring it back uh, Sunday, and I'll take them all over together, and we can get registered. Family camps are just an incredible opportunity to have an affordable vacation with your family, and just to spend time as a body together up in Twin Peaks. They've completely renovated the conference center up there and so if you haven't been up there for a while you've got to see it it's really nice it's a great time to spend time with the lord it's the greatest vacation for wives you know if you go camping the women still end up doing all the work and doing all the cleaning and everything up here everything's done for you it's a real relaxing time there are people to watch your kids half the day and teach them and so uh... but then you have a lot of free time the whole afternoon free organized activities Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that's the end of the commercial. I'll stick those right down here. All right. I think that's all. Junior, Pray for the junior high camp. They'll be going up next week. So if you have a junior high student who hasn't signed up for that camp... Um, you know you should still be able to jump in on it I would think camp's just a great time for kids to draw close to the Lord. There's a junior high camp up there this week and I spoke up there last night and I'll be going up again for the one next week when our kids are up there and so um, I'd encourage you if you know of a junior high student that would benefit from an experience like that which would be all junior high students um, if they say they're full tell them Dave said there's no way it's full just fit them in so well, I think I still have a little cloud up there I don't know um, we're starting tonight with our Through the Bible Bible study. And so we're going to start with Genesis. Sunday morning I pulled out <coughs> just Genesis 1.1 and talked about <coughs> creation, talked about how feasible it is that God created the world like the Bible says, as opposed to the, the scientific alternatives that have been proposed, such as evolution. And if you, if you weren't here Sunday morning and you're interested in those things, and I realize those aren't the same two things. Maybe you weren't here and you're not interested in it, then forget all about it. But if you want to go into a little more detail about some of the problems with the theory of evolution in particular, I'd encourage you to get the tape from Sunday morning and we'll go more into detail. Because tonight we're gonna to cover Genesis chapters one and two. And obviously, it's not going to be a ton of detail, or we'll be here all night. Plus, we're having communion at the end of the service, so um, I might keep preaching while we're doing communion. just depends how the time goes, but uh, no, not really. <laughs> Genesis, the first book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the part of the, the Torah that, that all Jews, Orthodox Jews see this as the Bible, these first five books, written by Moses. Um, it's pretty clear that it was written by Moses, I think. Now, some people would question that, and then you'd think, well, how could Moses—he was a long time after all this stuff happened—how would he know about things like creation and the flood and things like that? But if you look how old some of the guys lived, and you think about it, it only had to be passed down a few through a few people, and so it certainly could have been written. They had written language, but could have been passed down, and then through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses put it all together— See, Abraham, if you think about it, you know, Abraham lived long enough that he was alive when Methuselah was born. Abraham lived 950 years. I mean, Adam lived 950 years. Methuselah lived 969 years. So he lived at the same time Noah's sons were being born. Shem, Noah's son, not the Three Stooges guy, the other Shem. But uh, he lived 660 years. He lived clear well into Isaac's lifetime. And so, you know, another generation to Joseph and children of Israel, you're only talking about being passed down through about five people, if they're the right people, and they were all related. So um, Moses somehow got this. The Holy Spirit gave it to him. But it's not like, well, it was ancient history, mythology. Mythology doesn't grow up just over a few generations. People don't just make up stories. Right now, you know quite a bit about your grandparents because you've probably met them and spent time with them and talked to them. And so that was the way it was. These things that God did in the beginning from creation on, these are things that that they were well aware of because it wasn't that long of a period of time, especially when you consider how long they lived. Now... I don't want to get bogged down too much in the age of the earth and things like that, but there are several different ways that people look in terms of, okay, when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, when did that actually happen? The truth is we don't know. The Bible doesn't really say. There was a guy named Usher, Bishop Usher, calculated using genealogies throughout the Bible, calculated how old that he thought civilization should be and he, it goes back about 6,000 years old. But there are a lot of discrepancies in the genealogies, and it's complicated by the fact that when they say that someone begat someone, it doesn't necessarily mean it was their child, it was just their descendant. And so most people say that to Adam, from Adam to today, six to 10,000 years old, basically, um, if you're just looking at what the scripture says and trying to piece it together. Now, obviously, there are people today any scientist today, virtually, says that the universe is a lot older than that and says that, come on, the earth is a lot older than that. And, so to, and yet there are some scientists and, and they're good, credible scholars who do believe in what we call a young earth. Um, and the people at at ICR Institute for Creation Research in San Diego um, Henry Morris and Dwayne Gish and Ken Ham and these people they're at the forefront of defending a young earth basically and they have some problems some things that are difficult to defend for instance how can we see a star that's that's billions of light years away. The beam of light doesn't travel fast enough. It, only in a few thousand years for us to even see these things, and we realize they're further away than that. And so there are certainly problems with that. There are dating methods that we use that we're not going to go into, um, that can be predictable. You know, can be have predictive value, but on the other hand, some of them have some problems. For instance. Uh, using carbon-14 dating they found a boot up at uh, you know after the, um, the volcano up in in Washington exploded and they went some guys went up and they found a miners boot and they dated it at like two billion years old <laughs> obviously it wasn't that old but, but what we find is that catastrophes come into play in understanding the age of the earth the young earth advocates Talk about flood geology. They say that if there was a universal flood, which we'll go into later, that certainly affects the strata of the ground and the way that the earth looks. It wouldn't have much of a, of a consequence for astronomy, however, though. so you still have kind of a problem. But here in Genesis chapter 1, not it doesn't say when it all started, but let's take a look at it and I'll try to... I'll try to quickly give you some of the different ways that people who take the Bible seriously look at, the, at these chapters and, and understand them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word for create there, bara, is a word that it's, it literally means to cut out, but it had come to develop the meaning of to make something out of nothing. And that's why it's translated create. It's our idea of taking something and actually creating it. Not forming it from something else, but actually creating it. Now, throughout chapter 1, you'll notice that he only uses the word "bara" or create, just three times. He uses it here in verse 1. Later, in verse 21, when the great sea creatures were made, they were created. And, of course, when man was created over in verse 27, it says God created man. Other than that, he uses the term for the most part, either make, which means to form something. It kind of has the idea of, of um, arranging it and, and you know, more so than just de- you know, designing it, but it's actually taking existing materials and kind of forming them. And it uses that a lot and then it just presupposes and says, he says, let it happen and it happened. And so those are the three kinds of ways that we see things formed in chapter 1. Bara created more or less out of nothing, and then things that are actually made or formed out of something else and things that are just seem to be spoken and, and they just are. They're just stated, um, almost commanded into existence. In the beginning God, the word there I mentioned Sunday is Elohim. This is an interesting construction because the word Elohim is a plural noun. The name Elohim for God is plural, and yet the verb that it used with, created, is singular. It's saying there's only one party who created the world, and yet that party is described with a plural noun for God, Elohim. And in that expression, I believe, is an explanation or at least a hint of the Trinity. The fact that God is one God, and, and he, you can't separate him, and yet, they're distinct three members of the Godhead, all involved in everything that God does. So, you know, I'd like to explain it to you in a way that you could completely understand it, but I don't think you're capable, because I'm not. And if I, if I can't understand it, I can't explain it either. Um, the Bible just teaches it clearly. The doctrine of the Trinity is taught from Genesis to Revelation. Um, we know that all three members of the Godhead, three persons, one God, and... That's just it. But here's a reminder right in the first verse that that's, what, that that's what God did. That's a very unusual construction, by the way, in Hebrew. So now you have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now, in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, there are some people who see that verse 1 is a statement of everything that happened, and now he begins to explain how he did it. But that's a pretty unusual thing linguistically. People have kind of made it up, but I don't think there's a whole lot of support for it. It looks like something different happened in verse one than what happens later as he goes through the six days of creation. Um, Because verse two sounds like, I mean it says he created it and then it says the earth was without form and void. And there was this darkness and the Spirit of God was kind of brooding over the face of the waters. Now, there are some people who say that when God created the heavens and the earth in verse one, he created all mass and space and all that. And this verse two describes what it looked like in its primitive stage. And then verse three starts to go into God, actually, because it's not saying bara on all the things in in the six days of creation, it's the idea that basically God first created raw materials. It looked kind of a mess in verse 2, and then in verse 3, he starts to fix it. He starts to, re, you know, make it. Now, that's one, that's one real prominent idea as to what's happening here. There are a couple of problems with it. Well, first, let me tell you another idea. There's another thing called the gap theory. The gap theory says that there's a gap between verse 1 and 2, that God created the heavens and the earth, but then... Something happened, and there was a catastrophe on the earth, and it left it in the state that's described in verse 2. People came up with this theory, frankly, mostly to try to explain why it seems like the earth is so old and the universe is so old, and yet it looks like it was created in six days, if you just take it literally. And so the gap theory came about. Now, there isn't a whole lot of scriptural support for it. You'd think if that was the case there would be more about it. The only thing that kind of fits in here is that we don't know when Satan was cast down from heaven. We don't know when he was thrown down to the earth. You would think that when he was thrown down to the earth it would have done some damage, and so the thought is perhaps an explanation for where the fall of Satan fits in is between verses 1 and 2 because as we get to, ch- to, ver- to chapter 3 Satan's obviously already there as he's tempting Eve when man fell. So. You know, that's an idea of the gap theorists. They also would take, see where it says in verse 2, without form and void? That phrase is tohu wavohu in Hebrew, formless and void. And there are places where that that same phrase is used in the scripture. Um, For instance, over in Jeremiah chapter 4, and it's referring to a judgment of God and it's saying that he's going to make it tohu wavohu, saying God's going to judge the people and make their land without form and void. Now, you could take that as being either he's gonna make it back like it initially was before the recreation, or you could certainly say, God wouldn't make the world like that. It looks more like it's the result of some judgments or something like that. There are other passages where it says God didn't, over in Isaiah it says, God didn't create the earth, tohu, formless. Um, And so that's why, that's the ammunition that gap theorists use. To say, hey, maybe there's a space there. It could be billions of years, could be weeks. Um, it's not the gap theory isn't bad. The ICR people hate it because they think it's accommodating to the theory, you know, to the to evolution, to the you know, the old, old universe, and and they want to hang on to a young universe. Pastor Chuck taught the gap theory for many years. He still teaches it, but he says he doesn't know if it's legitimate or not. Um, Jay Vernon McGee. In his, through the Bible studies, um, leans towards a gap theory. And so we're talking about good people who take the Bible very seriously, who see this as a possibility. Now, there are other people who put a gap after verse 2 and before verse 3. They're saying God made it, and then it was, here's the way it looked. And now, after some indeterminate period of time, God started the six days of creation work. This is a whole different way to approach it. And it still would allow for, basically, it's a compromise position. You have on the one hand people who believe in a young earth and they take the Genesis 1 literally. You have people who believe in an old earth with the gap theory, they're still taking Genesis 1 literally. You have a whole different category of people that translate, that take the six days of creation as being longer days and they're a whole different sort of animal. But then these people are trying to say, look, you could have a r- billions of years old universe that's created in verses one and described in verse two, and yet then our biosphere, the area where we live, the atmosphere and the earth and, and all, that that could have been created in six literal days. So that's a whole different way of looking at it. Then you have people who, again, take the seven, the six days of creation, And make each of them an age. They say, you know, that these were long days. They weren't 24-hour days. They were very long. You have some problems with that, too. Because, you know, they say, well, one day is with the Lord is a thousand years. But the problem, as you'll see, you'll have plants created. But the sun isn't going to show up until thousands of years later in another age. And without the sun, no photosynthesis, no plants. So there are problems with, with that way of looking at it, too. I... The gap theory has some advantages. Um, I have a hard time with making these days long ages. It just seems to stretch what the scripture says very much. Also, as you look at the days, there are several reasons for taking them as 24 hour days. Normally, that's what a day means. And there's no place where it talks about the evening and the morning being a day unless it's a real day. On the other hand, if the sun doesn't show up until several days into it, how did they even know what a day was in the beginning? And later in chapter, th- in chapter two, it talks about the day that he created it all and sends it like, treats it like that. Also though, when day, when the word yom is used with a number, everywhere in the scripture, it's always referring to a regular day, a 24 hour day. So I guess what it comes down to is, I would rather believe it as literally as I can I'd rather end up looking at the Word of God and saying, it seems like this is what it says, and so I'll accept that. But it's really important for us to acknowledge also there are things we don't know. And I think it's foolish to to grasp onto any theory of Genesis and then say, this is the one, this is definitely the way it is. I think it's You know, could God, for instance, create a universe that looks old? Could he make a star that's billions of light years away and then create the beam of light that would allow you to see it? Sure he could. That's kind of a special twist on it, but I don't know. Basically what I'm saying is the same thing that I heard Pastor Chuck say a while back we were on to Every Man and Answer together and someone said, how old is the universe? And he said, we don't know so that's that's my answer but those are the different ways of looking at it if you're really interested I could give you all kinds of books to read about it and then you could be thoroughly confused but here's something to think about basically the from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11 creation the fall the flood the Tower of Babel those 11 chapters cover at least 2,000 years of history from chapter 12 through chapter 50 of Genesis, it covers only 350 years of history. And in fact, from chapter 12 of Genesis to Matthew, when Jesus comes on the scene, it's the same amount of time as is covered in Genesis 1 through 11, a couple thousand years. So realistically, if the universe we know it's at least 6,000 years old because we we know that civilization is that old so if so then God only spent 11 chapters covering the first third of all civilization so personally I don't think it's something that we should spend an inordinate amount of time and energy on because what God cares about obviously like he goes these big events he races through them in a few chapters He gets to chapter 12 and he starts dealing with Abraham and he deals with basically four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and he spends all the rest of Genesis from 12 through 50 on because God cares a lot more about people than he does about events. He cares more about the souls of people and their lives. And that's why he spends so much time on that because all of creation was just about man. It was just about God wanting to reach man and have fellowship with him. And so however we look at this, let's keep it in the category that it belongs. Interesting, I believe every word of it. I have no problem with anyone who takes it just as literally as they possibly want to take it. But I'm not going to dogmatically say, oh, I know this is exactly what it is because I wasn't there. And I don't think that's wise. And good people differ when it comes to some of these issues. So I just want to let you know the different ways of looking at it. So whichever way it pans out, it says, then God said in verse 3, let there be light and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were literally day one. He kind of, he doesn't call it the first day. He doesn't use an ordinal number. He uses a cardinal number, day one. The rest of the days he uses ordinal numbers, second, third, fourth. So day one is where he's starting the count. It doesn't really mean it was the first day, literally the first day of the universe. He's just saying, we're counting days from now, here's day one. And that's probably why he used, you know, cardinal number there. Basically, what happened in day one, um, it, it, our light comes from the sun, obviously, and stars reflects off the moon. Those don't come in. They aren't manifest until later. So at this point, probably what happened is the earth is surrounded by a, a, a thick vapor barrier. It's, it's, you know, as it says in verse 2, that, that darkness was on the face of the deep. So, so where the water was, it was completely dark. And, and God was moving over the face of the waters. But when it says that he divided the light from the darkness, he allowed enough light to seep in that you could tell day and night. He somehow thinned, thinned out the atmosphere enough that you could just discern light and dark, now you could tell it was a day. And each of these days, it says the evening and the morning were day one. The evening and the morning were the second day. And so it starts, picture this planet, in whatever state that it's in, it's all dark. And then all of a sudden, and I believe in a literal 24 hour period, the light begins to seep through and God's preparing this planet for the, the capstone of his creation ultimately, and that's people. But that's day one. The, the light and the darkness became manifest. He didn't create them. It didn't, doesn't say he made anything. He just said, let it be. And it was designed. It was, it was manifested. Then God said in verse 8, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Now what he's doing is he's making some sky. You had all this thick water. Now God rather than separating water and land which you see the next day at this point he says let's get some sky here and so the water that was over the face of the earth and the water that was in the atmosphere was separated so that what happens is you have an atmosphere that's suitable for life to be created and so now you have a water canopy which we'll find out when we read about the flood was probably a big part of what burst open and ended up changing the world bringing on that water and flooding the earth finally soaked in and it worked out but but at this point there's a huge water canopy that's up above the sky in our atmosphere there's a firmament in between there's air in between and then there's the water that covers the face of the earth now interestingly and we'll find this later when we talk about the flood that's probably why people live so long until the flood and then after the flood they started dying off a lot quicker because you had this water canopy that had been separated acted as a filter for ultraviolet rays and probably did all sorts of other he- healthy benefits as well it wasn't necessary for it to rain until the flood water just seeped up from the ground it was a very fertile sort of an environment and we were protected from you know the ozone layer and everything else by this water canopy so that was the firmament was made between the waters, in the midst of the waters, divided the waters from the waters. And it says, so God made or He arranged or He built the firmament and divided the waters which were under from the waters that were above. And it was so, and God called the firmament heaven. He's not talking about the heaven where God lives. He's talking about the sky where the birds fly, okay? And so the evening and the morning were the second day. So again, you have this picture. Light had started to form, but now the next day it's dark again, and all of a sudden, as the light comes up this day, there's a separation. There's air, there's atmosphere. You can actually see what's happening a little bit more. And so then God said, let the waters under the heavens, the, the waters beneath the firmament, be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. So now... Uh, the next day, God says, okay, let's raise up some of the land. Let's lower valleys in some of the seas so that the water can run into the ocean and there can actually be land because man's not going to be able to live if there's no place to live. Um, n- unlike those, that one movie where the guy was floating around on a boat for years with jet skis and stuff. It, it wouldn't work. You need, you need the land. You're not going to be able to, to survive. And so God called the dry land earth, And the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Notice every day he says it was good until the sixth day, and then he says it was very good when he made people. Then God said, well, actually, when he made woman, okay. Then God said, (laughs) let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. So he said, okay, let's get some vegetation. According to their kind, he uses that a lot, as referring to like phyla, it's, it's the families of, of animals or vegetation and so on. And so God said it was good, and the evening and morning were the third day. So the third day now you have plants growing on the, on the land. The fourth day, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, evening and morning were the fourth day. What happens here is he arranged things so that you could observe the planets, the stars, so that you could observe, so that the sun would be of practical value and the moon. That it, where up until this point it was kind of a hazy, you could tell light from darkness. But now, at this point, he arranges things in such a way that now you're seeing the sun and the moon. It was becoming clearer. He was, he was making these things obvious. He didn't create them at this point. It would be the earth revolves around the sun. So the earth wouldn't be there spinning, going nowhere. The sun was there. It was just that because of the way that things were in the water canopy, until God thinned things out and made them manifest or arranged them in the right way, literally, um, you couldn't see them. And so now they had them for practical value, um, you know, and for heat and so on. So again, it's, it's more suitable for, for people to live in. And then on the fifth day, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and birds flying above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. And so he made all these sea creatures and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening and the morning were the fifth day. So now you have animals Sea, well, you have sea creatures and birds, not, not most of your mammals, although probably the great sea creature were some of the sea-going mammals. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And so God made all these animals, everything that creeps on the earth, and he saw that it was good. And then, same day, sixth day, God said, Let us, another interesting plural word to be used as God's not just talking to himself, but it's probably communion in the Trinity. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he says, let's form man according to our image. In the image of God, man was going to be made. And so in verse 27, God created man in his own image In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So this is the capstone of God's creation. Ultimately, all this other stuff is really just decoration. Really what he's doing is creating an environment in the first five days of creation that's suitable for life. And as we talked about Sunday, this is the only place that's suitable for life. And you can tell when you look and you study this earth, you find that sure enough, everything that's here is created to be in perfect balance to allow people to live here. The anthropic principle is what scientists call that. The the fact that this place was designed for us. And so now at the culmination of this creation, God gets down to what he really wanted to do in the first place. And that is, he wanted to create in his own image, a civilization that could walk in fellowship with him. There have been entire books written on what does it mean to be created in the image of God, and other books written in how much of that was lost in the fall in Genesis 3. But to be created in the image of God means that we have a lot in common with God, definitely, that we're designed similar to him. It may refer to the fact that man is kind of a trinity as God is. And this breaks down at some point, but but man is body, soul, and spirit. Made, you know, that if you take one away, we're not not complete. They work in harmony. One affects the other. It's hard to decide which is which. God God can discern between the soul and spirit. For us, we have to argue about what soul and what spirit. Basically a simple thing, you know what your body is. The soul is kind of your mind, your will, your emotions. Your spirit is the part of you that connects with God. And so in that way, maybe we imitate the Trinity. But also we are beings that have will. We're beings that are capable of moral judgment we're beings who are capable of communicating in a meaningful way more than the dolphins or you know any of the other creatures they can you know you can teach a monkey to to you know learn simple sign language or you can teach a horse to stamp out how old they are and and those kinds of things but basically there's no other creature that communicates on the level that mankind does and Certainly, there's no, no animals or, you know, you can teach your dog to pray, you know, praise Jesus, and they put their little paws up, but they're really not, they're really not communing with God in any meaningful way. It's the fact that we are created in the image of God is, in a sense, we are made to match up with God, that there's something within us that won't be complete until we're in fellowship with God. There's something that he made within us that we are a perfect, perfectly suitable to fellowship with God. And so everything's messed up when we're not in fellowship with God. And you can thank the fact that you were created in the image of God for that. Now, all of his creation expresses his glory. You, and, and I always kind of get on people, when you go to the mountains and you just say, I feel so close to God when I'm in creation. Well, you're, for, well, you're always in creation for one thing, but, but also, those beautiful trees and those babbling brooks and the beautiful blue sky, it's made for our enjoyment. It, it, it glorifies God. It's something that I greatly appreciate. But I'll tell you something, that's not how you get close to God by going and getting close to those elements of nature. The fact is the only way to get close to God is to get close to people because the most despicable person on the face of the earth was created in the image of God, and that big giant redwood tree wasn't. That babbling brook wasn't. The sky and all that, it was just his finger painting. And until we come to understand that it's not the beauty of getting away from people that fulfills us, but that ultimately, our task is to get along together, our task is to fellowship, because the drunken bum in the gutter was created in the image of God. And when you get close to his, that's why Jesus said, you know, if you love me, feed my sheep. You know, if you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me, the least of these. Why? Because the least of his disciples are still created in God's image, and he still loves them, and he still looks at them, and even when they're messing up, and even when they're living in sin, he's saying, oh, I just want to gather you. I love you so much. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you killed the prophets. How I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. He looks at the world. He looks at the the most miserable people in the world, and he says, I just want to wrap my arms around you and love you. Because as mankind, we're uniquely created to fellowship with God. We're uniquely created in the image of God. And that should cause us to not only appreciate who we are before God, it should cause us to look at each other a little bit different as well. Because so often we value other things way more than we value people. God will never be that way. It was only after he created people that he said he saw it and it was very good. It was better than all the other stuff. Yeah, he, he, God said, this is what I wanted. This is it. It's done. And so he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, every living thing that moves on the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion doesn't just mean shoot everything that moves. The I- <laughs> Although there's a place for that, but uh, the idea is you're in a position of authority. You're in a position of responsibility for this environment. I don't think it's completely teaching, you know, tree hugging environmentalism either, but. But all it's saying is you're in a position to be in control of this environment. You have decisions that are going to affect the environment, and I expect you to use it. And, and the environment is there for your use. And, and he said, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed. And basically he made them vegetarians at this point. And I've given every green herb for food, for you and for the beasts of the field, and so on. So everyone was a vegetarian, no carnivores at that time, no burgers, no steaks. You know, the, the uh, animals could walk freely because no one was going to eat them. They were just all, they weren't eating each other. They were only eating vegetables. It probably, the vegetarian diet, you don't want to super-spiritualize it too much and say this is God's diet, because a little later he was, you know, he was letting them munch on other stuff. And, uh, you know, Jesus himself at least ate fish. He wasn't a vegan. Um, but but uh, the environment in those days, you know, there was no one, well, there was no death probably. So until the sacrifice, you know, after the fall. So they were just eating vegetables. And God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. And the evening and morning were the sixth day. Now, just an interesting cross-reference for you when he's talking about being fruitful and multiplying, if you turn over to Genesis chapter 9 after the flood. In Genesis 9, verse 1, it says that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Had to be done over again because it had just been wiped out by the flood. And the fear, which, by the way, if it was a local flood like a lot of people think, why would they need to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Why would he need to spend 90 years building an ark if he could just t- get a wagon and haul it out of the valley? But that's a whole different Bible study. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things even as the green herbs, you can have a salad with it, but have your steak is what he's basically saying. Um, after, the, after the flood, environment was different. Maybe there was more of a need for protein um, than there was before, I don't know. But this is, you see the different commissions. To Adam and Eve, eat your vegetables. To, to Noah, you know, every animal's gonna run from you because you'll eat anything that moves. You know, it was just a, a shift in policy there. Chapter two, the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So now on the seventh day, God rests. It's kind of interesting that Why would God need to rest? Well, this was referred to throughout the scriptures talking about the Sabbath, referring back to it. And the idea was that after God did all that he did, he was saying, now, this isn't just all about making stuff. He could have taken another day and he could have made more stuff. But the fact is, it was finished. What was supposed to happen had happened. And now he sat back. In the same way that Jesus, as he hung on the cross, when he said, it is finished, remember that was right before the Sabbath. They had to come around and get him off the cross before the Sabbath. And so Jesus' work was finished at that point. And, but Jesus is said to be our Sabbath. If you, if you read over in Hebrews chapter four, it talks about this and it says, you need to understand you're created so that you could enter into God's rest. You're not created just to work. You're not created just to keep laboring and plodding along and hanging in there. The people in the Old Testament, it says, never entered into God's rest. Abraham never understood it. But there's a rest that remains for the people of God. And it's that rest that comes from fellowshipping with him where we quit striving, where we're not constantly working, trying to produce more and more. We're not just put here to produce. And even God, after he created the world in those six days, he wasn't tired. You don't have to be tired to rest. It's, it's partly just pacing yourself. It's partly just acknowledging that, okay, what's done is done. And now I can just sit back and relax and make this a special day. Now, later, as you read about the Sabbath and, and uh, you know, you could look over, let's see, what time is it? We won't look there. Uh, I'll just give you the verses. Over in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 31, it gives the laws of the Sabbath and basically, again, connects it with this. God's people were told, take a day off. Now, you're going to run into people who believe that Christians should keep the Sabbath. And usually by that, whether they're Seventh-day Adventists or there are a few other little groups that do this, usually by that what they mean is Saturday which Sabbath just means seventh, it's the seventh day. Saturday is the day you ought to go to church instead of Sunday. And they say that Christians have changed the Sabbath into Sunday. We haven't changed the Sabbath into Sunday. If you read what the Sabbath was all about, it was not about going to church. It was not a day in which you, which you were worshiping God in some particularly special way. That wasn't even the deal with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day when you didn't do anything and they came up with all kinds of crazy rules that that took the joy out of it. Jesus was the one who said, no, come on, the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. It's not something that you should be enslaved to. It's something that's made for you so that you can enjoy it. And the principle is still good. Even though the Sabbath, as you read over there in Exodus, when God gave it, he obviously gave it just to the Jewish people. He made that very clear that this was something for Israel. However, it's a good principle for us. We need to stop sometimes. And you know, I'm saying this while I'm working three jobs right now and just driving myself crazy. But when you wear yourself out, you can appreciate this a lot more. There's definitely good sense to setting aside a day where you don't, not just a honeydew day where you're just working around the house all the time, a day when really you're just not doing much. just a day with your family, a day to, you know, maybe spend some time with the Lord, but not some heavy spiritual fasting kind of, oh, you know, going to church and everything. No, it's not that. It's just stop it. You know, knock it off. Relax. Take a break. And that's what God was trying to set that example before his people. And he did it constantly. And he used Jesus later as a picture of it. And it says that Jesus is our Sabbath. See, ultimately, he is our break. He's the one who finally and ultimately can come up to us and say, that's it, it's done, it's finished, te telestai, but during this life, the principle is still there. Don't go so hard, don't push yourself so far, don't allow people and their urgency, the tyranny of the urgent, to drive you to the point where you feel like you ought to be doing something, that if you just sit down and relax, you feel guilty. We need to create time for ourselves. It doesn't have to be on Saturday. It doesn't even have to necessarily be one day it can be set aside an hour during each day but at some point we need to understand and God didn't rest for his benefit he rested for ours and to teach us that sometime you just have to walk away from it sometimes you just have to look at everything that needs to get done and say it's gonna be there when I get back but right now I'm gonna set aside some time and I'm gonna stop and that time is not just to go to church in fact, going to church, this isn't restful. You know, I'm torturing you right now. But <laughs> let me tell you something. As much as I think it's critical that you come to church, as much as I want to see people here, I want to see this building filled, if it comes time for church and you just haven't had any time to just relax, well, skip church and take a break. Go for a walk on the beach. You know, if, if really that's the only way you can do it, now I'm not going to find fault with you. I'm not going to say, oh, you should be in church. I'm, no, church is really important. Work is important. Eating and sleeping, those things are important too. But so is resting. So is loafing. There needs to be a time for it. If you start to specialize in it, maybe there's a problem. But, you know, in this, unless you're buying bonbons by the case at Price Club, I don't think there are many people in here who are really just completely loafing all the time. I mean, some people have developed it into an art form. But for most of us, the temptation is just to keep pushing, keep moving, keep working. And, and God wants us to take a break. He wants us to take it easy sometimes. And I'm, if I'm harping on this, it's because I need it so bad. <laughs> In fact, I'm leaving right now. I'm not, no. <laughs> So you got, oh, by the way, if anybody lays the whole Sabbath trip on you, the, the, uh, over in Colossians chapter 2, it says, don't let anybody judge you according to Sabbath. So that's a verse I always pull out when someone starts telling me, you know, that I'm not, it, uh, hey, I should bring it out when my wife's, when Ann's telling me that, you know, I need to take a break. Hey, don't, I'm not going to let you judge me according to Sabbath. But really, that's not the intent. The intent is don't let people tell you that you have to take a sabbath that's not what it is why should somebody have to tell you that why should somebody force you to take a break you know you ought to do it yourself learn to do it before you burn out have you ever you know been so busy that you're not getting anything done you sit there and you're looking at stacks of stuff and you can't rest because you have too much to worry about but it seems like some days you work really hard and don't get anything done Sometimes it's from neglecting the Sabbath that that happens. The land had its own Sabbath as well in Israel. And when they didn't allow the land to rest, what happened? It became less productive. And the fact is, if we don't rest, if we don't don't honor that principle, we're going to be less productive. It's really a false economy to drive yourself until you drop. And I know. Now he goes on to say that in verse four, this is the history or the generations of the heavens and the earth. So now, what he's talking about, and he says, "In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens." So now he's treating it like this was all one day, which is one reason why I think you can't trip out too much on the whole meaning of yom as being day. But now he's obviously, from the context, referring to just the whole thing as a day. And so he's, he he begins to rehash it a little bit, and he says before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. There was a mist that went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. It's like that same water canopy before the firmaments were separated that happened. And then he says, and this changed everything, the Lord God formed man. He, again, in in this term, it's not referring to creating him it's the process that he used, he formed them of the dust of the ground. You know, later, you know, after the fall, it refers to the fact that um, over in chapter 3 that says, uh, you know, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Um, Basically, everything physical about our bodies is just made from the same chemicals that you'll find in the ground, in the dirt. But the difference is God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. At some point, now, there are some people who believe in evolution, a progressive kind of evolution, where they say that man might have evolved from earlier creatures, but at some point, God came and breathed life into him, and that's what made him a person. I don't believe that because I just don't find the evidence for evolution that credible. But just to let you know, there are some people who say that at any point... There's a point where God gave life to man by breathing into him. By, and it kind of reminds you when Jesus breathed on his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. You know, when God breathes, it happens. Something happens. It's interesting, too, that breath and wind, the same word as the word for spirit. Just an interesting side point. And so then it says that God planted a garden eastward in Eden, just east from where they were created. And he put the man whom he had formed in the garden. And out of the ground he made all these trees that were pleasant for sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and so was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't really say, but probably the tree of life was a tree that if you ate from it, you'd stay alive forever. It's it's gonna be in heaven. The The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the one that you aren't supposed to eat of. It did give you knowledge of good and evil, but it gave you death as well, and they were told that later. But those two trees were in the middle. And it says a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and there were four rivers, and it names the rivers, and uh, the four rivers, and it says in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it, just just to cultivate it, take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die, and we'll talk about that next week. The Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him, someone that fits him. And so out of the ground, it says, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Now, this is interesting because the days are kind of messed up because birds came up in day five and the animals came up in day six. But what's happening is he brings all these animals and all these birds to Adam and he has Adam name them. And it says, whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Here's what happened. All the animals were created in pairs. And so God saw that Adam was alone and he knew that wasn't good. And so what he said, I need to fix this. But Adam had never seen another person. All he had seen were the animals. And so if all of a sudden, you know, a woman shows up, it could be kind of weird. So God had this clever, I think it's really cute, the way God did it. He said, he paraded all the animals in front of Adam and said, let's name them. And Adam said, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Lion, Mr. and Mrs. Peacock, Mr. and, and then all of a sudden it hit him. Wait, there's no Mrs. Adam. It's just all these animals are in pairs and I'm here all by myself. And God goes, yeah, you're right. None of these. Do you want to be married to any of these? Nah, <laughs> it's just not. You just don't match up, Adam. And so now Adam senses the need that God already knew. God already saw it. Now, another interesting question is, did this all happen on the sixth day of creation? Because it says that male and female were all created on the sixth day. If it's a 24-hour day, it seems like it would take a while to name the animals. But that's just a question I'm tossing out there. I don't know, it's one of the things that causes me to wonder whether it was necessarily 24 hour days. I still, all things considered, think they were 24 hour days. I don't know how to explain that. That's just an answer you can call to every man an answer and, and make us look stupid if you want. But Because there's not a good answer to it. I can fake some, but. <laughs> so Adam named all the animals and there wasn't found a helper comparable to him. Someone that matched him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made. Again, that same word before that means to arrange or to build. You know, he made it into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. They are both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So God takes a rib from Adam. Now, at first, this sounds kind of strange. Well, how, how, why would he have to do surgery and lift a rib from Adam and then kind of make that into a person? Do we really believe that woman was made, was created, was designed out of a rib? Well, Yeah. I do, but I don't think it was like she was just carved out. But think about what happens now with what we know about genetics. By taking a bone that you could spare, a bone that really, you could do, Adam would do okay without a rib. A lot of people get ribs removed now just to be skinny. So the bone was taken, well inside that bone marrow you've got your DNA. You've got everything that chemically makes up who Adam is, and the idea is to make something that matches Adam. And so for God to use something from inside him, scientifically, it's the only feasible way to actually make another being that that can mate with the being that you're operating on. And so all he had to do was tweak some of those chromosomes, just work with some of the genetics a little bit, and engineer, create, construct this woman who was Eve. And obviously when Adam saw her, he liked what he saw. Because when, when when God brought her to the man, Adam said, this is bone of my bone. It's like, whoa, I lost a rib. Look at this. I can't believe this came out of a bone. And flesh of my flesh. She came out of me. I mean, this is, God, how did you do this? The animals, they all have their mates. Somehow out of me came someone who's just perfect. I wish I had time to tell you all the Adam and Eve jokes and everything, but you probably heard them all anyway. But it was this was awesome. He was so happy. He goes, "I'm going to call her woman." He didn't. He didn't call her Eve. By the way, Adam just means man. Woman is a is a is a extension of the word man, and and so he was like, "She's kind of like me." So I can't. She's obviously not a man, <laughs> but she's a woman. So that's what I'm going to call her. Later he calls her Eve, and we'll find out why next week. But in this case, it's the you know the Hebrew word ish, which was man. Um, he just Adds a little thing to it and calls her Isha. You know, it's like, wow, you're like a man, but whoo, you're not like a man. <laughs> and, uh, and so he was pleased. He's going, yeah, some of the parts are, you know, recognizable, but boy, you've got some extra features. <laughs> and as a result of this compatibility, He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is where the communion that God created between a man and a woman, this is where it started. And this is the way he intends for us to function. And this is why still, you know, you you just don't, a family just doesn't grow and just be completely, you know, inbred unless you're in the Ozarks or something, and that's a whole different problem. But for the most part, it's like he's saying, no, now you're supposed to leave your father and mother. You don't naturally grow someone who's just like you, but what you're doing is God has someone who's different than you, but like you in certain ways, but more matching you, compatible to you. And, And most of the best combinations of people are when two people aren't alike. It's your differences that cause you to need each other. And if you just marry someone just like you, it could be really miserable. And most, most bad marriages that I know of, most marriages that I see fail, the people are just like each other. You think this should be perfect, you deserve each other. But the fact is, it's the differences that make relationship important. It's the fact that we see things differently. The same reason why you fight with your spouse all the time is the same reason why God gave them to you, not to fight but to realize that differences working together can create something that's a a sort of a synergy that the that the combination of the two is more valuable than just the sum of its parts. And so as a result he's saying this is the way it was. Compatible, yes. Related, absolutely. With some similarities, of course, but different in a way that the best thing for you to do is to leave your parents. I mean they didn't leave their parents. He didn't put this in here for their benefit. They didn't have parents. But he said, for us, because of the way that God did that and different people, I think it was Matthew Henry who first talked about, he didn't take her from his head, you know, didn't take her from his foot, but it was from his side so she could be by him and under his arm and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I doubt if, all, if God had all that in mind, but, but the fact is that he finds someone that's compatible and he says, now you leave that which you were before and realize that in combining with this person, you're gonna feel like you're related. The more you're together, you will think alike and it'll be a miracle that you do because you're so different. And yet God makes you so compatible. And see, again, it all fits in with his plan. Marriage, it's not just for making people happy. Remember, from the, from the moment of creation, God's plan was, how can I create someone that I can have a loving relationship with? And he thought, I am so different than Adam. Yes, he's created in my image. We have periods, you know, pieces and places where we contact where this can work, but also we're so different. My ways are so higher than his ways, so I'll send him a woman, and the two of them can work together and discover things about themselves and about each other that will add a richness to their lives, and when they understand what that love is about, then I can come in and say, here's the mystery. That love that I gave you for each other, that's the love that I have for you, but way more than that. That's why it's so tragic. That's why it's so sad when we don't do what God tells us to do in, in living out this love in our lives because it's designed as a picture of His love. It's designed to show people how much God cares about us. It's not easy to make it work. Of course not. Adam and Eve, look at the problems they were in a chapter later and, you know, blaming each other basically for their problems, and we'll all do that. but. The point is that God's creation was all about God getting close to someone, and He gave us marriage. He gave us this relationship as a, to prime the pump, to cause us to understand the kind of love that God has for us, and sometimes to help us realize how much we need God's help, because it's difficult. But you leave and you cleave. You get away from what your life was before and you say, I'm latching on to another person. I'm man, she's woman. We have a lot together that's supposed to work together, and ultimately it's going to exhibit God's love. Now, you know, there are exceptions. It is for some people. Paul talks about the fact that some people in situations, they're better off being alone right now. I I know some people who are married that would probably be better off single, but you know, some days everyone thinks that. But. In general, what God was saying, he saw him and he said, it's not good to be alone. And I think definitely, even if God, if at this point in your life, you're married or if you aren't married, God still doesn't want you to be alone. It's still not good. And that's why we have the body, and that's why we have fellowship and friends and, and the intimate relationship with God that we can have together. And that's what creation is all about. That's what all all the trouble that he went to, all of these incredible miracles as he, you know, started out and there was this watery mass and he separated the waters and he separated the land and he brought up fish and he got the plants and he got animals and, all, and and allowed the sun and the moon and the stars and all that and, and then here it is, people are. People are created, man and woman, and, they, and they're supposed to cleave to each other. And he goes, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now I look at this, that's very good. It's very good. Because it's getting down to that for which I created all this other stuff to demonstrate. Relationship, that's what it's all about. And it goes ahead and it says they're both naked. Whether they, for some reason they didn't need clothes, I don't know. Some people have postulated that maybe they were clothed with light or something like that. But see, there was no sin at this point. So nobody would think anything bad. I don't even know why. It's man and wife. I don't even completely understand why they were so embarrassed. But, um, you know, he throws that on at the end to create the idea that, you know, in this relationship, they had nothing to hide. In this relationship, that was to depict God's love. There was no division, there was no embarrassment, there was no shame, there was nothing. It was pure and innocent and beautiful the way God wanted his relationship with his people to be. And that's where chapter two leaves us off. Next week, we'll look at chapters three, four, and five and see the the fall and what happened to mess all this up. Um, Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for thinking of us ahead of time. The Bible tells us that you chose us before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1-2, before Genesis 1-1, before any of this stuff happened. You saw us. And you went to all this trouble because you wanted to know us personally. Because you loved us before we even existed. Lord, help us to know that love and to experience it. God, help us to respond to that which you've done for us because your plan as it culminated in Calvary and then in our lives as it brings us to today where we've acknowledged that you love us, that you died for us, that we're your children, and and we're trying to live this life out the best we can. God help us to do it in a way that brings honor and glory to you. Lord, I pray for the marriages that are here right now. As you have given each person who's married, you've given them a partner that's compatible to them. And we fight against that compatibility, but we know that it's true. We acknowledge that the gifts that you give us, that we're to cling to them. God, I pray that you would help each of us to cling to our spouses, to to value that bond that we have, that's grounded in a commitment that was made before you, that was in your eye long before we ever saw each other, as you looked down through the generations and you matched us up in order to demonstrate your love, in order to demonstrate the fact that we will never be complete until we're in perfect harmony with you. So God, help us to live up to that. Lord, we love you and we thank you for loving us and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand up for just a second? Um, we're going to have communion. and. Celebrating the body and blood of our Lord is something that's an important thing for us to do, to remember. And I think it fits in beautifully, really, with what we've been reading about. Because it's all ultimately about being together. It's all as we participate together. As, as I eat the same part of the bread that you're eating, it becomes a part of my body. It becomes a part of your body. And mystically, it becomes we become a part of the body of Jesus Christ. And I don't completely understand what all's involved. And it's not just a magical thing. We don't believe that it literally becomes Jesus' body. But at the same time, it's something that's very significant to him. And so uh, I want us to just have this time, just a few minutes, to partake together, okay? And what we're going to do, it's a little different, it's a little weird, but I am. And But what we're going to do is, um, while the, the praise band is, is playing, they're going to do about four songs. Um, you can sit down now, by the way. And we just want to worship the Lord. And then when you're ready to take communion, If your family's here, if you have friends who are here, whatever, just come up in groups together. And come up and the guys will give you the bread and the juice and just kinda pull off to the side and pray together and thank God for what he's done for us. And then just partake of it together. We won't wait and have everyone do it together. Just we'll do it individually. And you know, please, the one rule is nobody does this alone. Okay, nobody does this alone. So you, if you're by yourself and there's nobody around you that you wanna hook up with, That's a bad choice of words, but, you know, just come up and wait until somebody else comes up. Or if you're a couple and then you see somebody else that looks like they're by themselves, just get them and include them. Let's not exclude anyone. We're doing this together as a part of the body. So as the band just plays those songs, let's just worship God. And after you partake, you can go back and sit and just finish worshiping. But again, it gets into the fourth song. You know, we're getting close. So. Um, As you see, as there's room up here, the guys are up here, they'll be glad to give it to you. Let's just partake together and thank God for all that he's done for
2: us.